Um, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Matthew, then Mark, those are the first two Gospels, first two books of the New Testament. <clears throat> Mark 11, 1 through 11 will be our primary text. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. And today is Palm Sunday. Um, and the events of this day, I think, are pretty simple. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, they're, they're a bit odd. Simple, but a little bit odd. So Jesus rides into a city. He rides into a city, and people line the streets. They sing. They celebrate. Then Jesus goes to the temple. He looks around and then leaves the city. Those are the facts. That's Palm Sunday. And for 2,000 years, we have been celebrating that particular event, the Sunday before Easter. And yet, when we look more closely, as is often the case in Scripture, at these facts that might be simple but odd, we see that there's this cosmic level uh, of meaning. Jesus rides a donkey, which he essentially divines out of thin air, it seems like. Uh, And the city into which Jesus rides is Jerusalem during the high holy days of Passover, the annual celebration of God's people when he spared them as he passed over their doors in captive Egypt. What's more, all of those simple details were precisely predicted thousands of years before any of this happened. So while on the surface it may seem simple, there is so much more here to consider. Consider, And the people celebrate Jesus, in fact, not like a moral teacher, not just like the latest and greatest rabbi in town, but much more like a king. It's like a coronation a king with a divine origin in this otherworldly kingdom that they're saying is in line with King David. And in the very next scene, still in Mark chapter 11, Jesus will cleanse the temple. He'll start tossing temple tables if you're familiar with that story. See, on the surface, this humble Jewish teacher comes into a Jewish city, but beneath the surface, the living Lord is turning God's city on its ear. He's turning things upside down, and that's what I'd like to talk about today. See, the Scriptures are always inviting us to look beneath the surface to find real meaning and real understanding. In His famous parable of the sower, Jesus actually talks about this pretty plainly. He explains that the curse of humanity, or rather, He explains the curse of humanity by quoting the prophet Isaiah. In Matthew 13, He says, "'For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Jesus, of course, is not speaking physically or matter-of-factly. He's speaking spiritually. He's speaking about their hearts. In fact, Jesus is connecting this language of ears and eyes, hearing and seeing with the heart. In other words, He connects hearing and seeing with believing. It's like the conductor in the children's book, The Polar Express, right? The conductor looks at the children and he says, seeing is believing, but sometimes, in fact, he says, most real things in the world we can't see. In other words, he's talking about that believing is seeing. There's something when you have faith that you're able to perceive and understand that you just don't with the plain eye. See, spiritual vision is what we'll call it, is an understanding, uh, understanding rather a world which goes beyond the physical, the visible, and the oral, what you can just see and taste and hear with your own senses. It's something deeper. And I think this is the healing that Jesus ultimately provides us. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Adam and Eve and how one of the first things that happened when they sinned is their eyes were opened, but they saw less. 
It's this strange paradox in the Scriptures that by seeing only with your eyes, you see less. And so this is the theme that gets carried on throughout the Scriptures. See, Jesus is the one who ultimately gives us spiritual vision. And I think Easter is all about spiritual vision. See, not just seeing that Jesus is coming into a city, but understanding why did He come? What's all this about? Not just seeing on Good Friday Jesus die on a cross, but contending with the power and the purpose of His death. Not just seeing Jesus rise, but trusting that this resurrection power is somehow still available to you and me by grace through faith. See, are you with me? That faith is actually necessary because the life that we were made for requires spiritual vision. I'm convinced that one of the things that most frustrates us that we don't even know about is when we start just seeing with our eyes and we stop seeing with our hearts. I think it's really frustrating because we're not seeing the world as God has created it. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about spiritual vision, and really, I want us to start using it as we walk through the Scriptures. So this is one of those, those lessons that we will learn by doing as opposed to learn by listening or by telling. We'll begin to navigate the Scriptures and see what is beyond what can just be seen or read in this case. See, we'll begin with His arrival and simply ask, why did Jesus come? Why did He come? Why did He enter into the city this way? And we'll organize our time this morning uh, centered on that question, which is really a question of motivation or reason or purpose. And I think there are at least three motivations underneath the facts that we discern from this text about why did Jesus come to earth? Why is He entering the city in this way, in this moment, in this time? We'll look at Jesus' relational motivation, His kingdom motivation, and then His redemptive motivation. So His relational, kingdom, and then redemptive motivation. That's what I hope, by God's grace, will be clear to us from this text today. So let's pray and ask for His help. Heavenly Father, I I think pretty plainly, if You don't show us what's true and beautiful in this passage, we won't see it. If it's just up to us, it's like all of life. If it's really just up to us, it's not going to go well. Uh, Many of us perhaps have fresh examples from this past week of doing life in our own power, in our own wisdom, and with what we can only see with our eyes. And so, we ask for your forgiveness and from the outset admit that we need your healing. We need healing that reconnects our eyes with our hearts and our ears with our hearts like Jesus spoke about. And the good news is that you can do that. You can reconnect body and soul, and you do that on the regular. And so, we're simply asking, Father, would you in this moment, this time, help us to think and see and listen with our hearts? so that we can see the fullness of who your Son is and who we are meant to be as we emulate and live in His power. So uh, we ask for your help in this. We ask that your Spirit would illuminate the Scriptures so that we would see uh, the truth and beauty of our God today. We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, Amen. All right, let's look at this particular, this opening passage or opening scene from this passage and see what we can't see with our hearts, or rather see what we can see with our hearts. Uh, verse 1, Mark 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied uh, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them uh, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and He sat on it. 
this is a wild story. <laughs> so what do we see? It's, again, it's simple, but it's very odd. So as they get close to the city, Jesus has been there once before, but as they travel back to the city, Jesus tells his disciples, all right, go get an Uber. We're going to make it the rest of the way a little bit differently than we got there to this point. Go get this colt, or really it's a donkey. Bring it here. And while it's impressive enough that everything happened just like Jesus said, what I think is more impressive is what he tells them to do, what he tells them to say to those if anyone gives you any opposition. If you get any pushback, here's what I want you to say. That's the critical point. Notice again, he says, if anyone gives you trouble, tell them what? The Lord has need of it, but he'll bring it back. The Lord has need of it, but he'll bring it back. I think this is really interesting because notice Jesus doesn't say, here's what we're going to do with it. Tell them what we're going to do. What does he tell them? Who needs it? This is a sermon all in itself. Almost always, you know who, but you don't know what, right? There's power in that. There's power in knowing who and not knowing what. And that's exactly what Jesus gives them. This is the beginning of all spiritual vision, is who. We don't always know what, but we always, by God's grace, know who. Are you with me? See, during Jesus' earthly ministry, many people asked him the same question. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you taking this? Why are you acting like this? Why are you talking like this? Why are you going there and not there? Why are you going here to these people and not those people? And in the same way that Jesus instructs his disciple, he almost always focuses on the who rather than the what. John, the gospel writer John, was particularly keen, particularly aware of this theme in Jesus' ministry. And over and over again, Jesus explains, in response to all of these questions, his relational motivation, his relational motivation as being the centerpiece of his coming to earth. Famously, he says, perhaps you know this text in John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the only verse that in my head I think I've memorized in the King James version for some reason, so I have to like be very intentional about how it's actually here in the English Standard Version. It says, for he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We'll consider a second piece of motivation that's expressed there, but the primary, the core motivation, notice, what does Jesus say? The Father gave His Son. The Father sent His Son. So why did Jesus come? Here's our first answer, because the Father sent Him. Who? The Father sent Him. Do you see? Now, this does not mean that Jesus came against His will. He's, he's not sent by some manipulative or headstrong father forcing him to go and do his bidding, right? Perhaps some of you have this story in your life. You have errands that you had to run, and regardless of what you desired, you needed to do them for your father, for one of your parents, right? This isn't what's going on here. Jesus actually says in the next chapter, in John chapter 4, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, the will of God nourishes the soul of Jesus. It's nourishment to him. And in a few more scenes, Jesus explains to the disciples in John chapter 6, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus comes to earth, and what's motivating him there on that first Palm Sunday is that he desires to be, or rather he is, a good and loving son who finds joy, who finds life, who finds nourishment in doing the will of his Father. For many of us, this is a foreign concept. 
that you would find joy and nourishment in doing the will of another. This is why it takes spiritual vision. You have to see this differently than perhaps we would. So why did Jesus come? Because the Father sent Him, and Jesus loves His Father. He loves His Father. You will find this theme on repeat throughout the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, particularly from Jesus' own mouth. I love my dad. I love my dad. I want to do what He has called me to do. It's this relational motivation. See, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, He was doing just that. He was obeying His Father. And generations even before the birth of Jesus, God the Father made a promise to His people through the prophet Zechariah on which all of Palm Sunday hinges and finds its power. God promises to one day send a king to bring healing, repentance, and restoration to His people. He says this in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This is, this is a messianic promise, a promise which God's people through the Hebrew Scriptures anticipated this particular figure, this Messiah, this anointed one, who was to be the Savior that was going to bring all of God's promises to bear for His people. They were anticipating this one. They were anticipating the long-awaited Savior. And on Palm Sunday, then the Father was sending the Son to be the fulfillment of this particular ancient promise. So you see, Jesus is doing exactly what His Father generations ago said that He ought to do. That's why Jesus came. He came with a relational motivation. He came because His Father sent Him, and He loves His Father. Why is this so critical? Well, I think it's because um, Jesus, it's important to know that Jesus did not just come primarily to teach nice moral lessons. So if all of we garner from the Scripture, as Jesus has a nice perspective on life, we've missed His motivation. We've missed the reason that He has come. Others may think that He came first and foremost to help people, which is true, but it's not central. It's not His central motivation. And if we don't know why Jesus has come, we won't understand the fullness of how He has shown up in real space and real time. See, neither of these are the primary and earliest motivation of the Son of God. His core motivation is His love for His Father. His food is not moral teaching. His food is not even the salvation of the world. His food, what nourishes Him deep down in His soul, is His love for His Father. He'd do anything for His Father. This is what we see, I think, when we begin to look with our hearts at Palm Sunday. In other words, we don't just simply see a man coming to a city, but we see a son coming from his father. It reorients us to this day. We don't just see what, we see who. But there's more. Jesus doesn't just have a relational motivation, though it's primary. He was compelled to come to earth to enter into the city that day because he was bringing a kingdom. See, as we continue to follow Jesus into the city, we sense this other reason for His coming. And, it, and it's also simple, but also odd. See, people seem to be preparing the way. They're even shouting. I don't know if you've ever entered a city like this. Probably not. This is different. It's a different kind of way to come uh, to a particular place. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 8. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and uh, others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
So people are lining the streets, people are in front of him, people are behind him, they are all around, but they are all in accord. Mark gives us a number, I think, of clues of what we'll simply call Jesus' kingdom motivation. See, Jesus knew what was going on. None of this was surprising to him. He didn't orchestrate it in the sense of forcing people to do it, but he knew what they would do if all of this imagery, if all of these things began to unfold. So he wasn't surprised by the crowd's response. He knew exactly what they would do and the meaning of it all. He knew Zechariah's prophecy. After all, Jesus has perfect spiritual vision. He's not just seeing with his eyes. He's always seeing with his heart. So what did Jesus see? What did he hear as he entered the city? Well, first, he sees the city. Jerusalem is the epicenter of the national and spiritual identity of God's people in the first century. It's a place where there is a throne and where there's a temple. And Jesus sees all of this as the fulfillment of this coming kingdom that God has long promised. So he's, he's, not, mess, he's not missing it. He's not mistaken. He understands that something is coming to bear that was promised all the way back in Genesis, that this people would be a blessing to all the nations that it would be through this people that all peoples would be blessed is what God promised back in the day to Abraham in Genesis 12. See, in Christ, in this city, this kingdom that was once lost is now being reclaimed and being born again, if you will, through King Jesus. So, so why did Jesus come? To bring the kingdom. Do you see it? Jesus doesn't just see the city, though, but he also sees these things that Mark describes as leafy branches, right? John is the only gospel that calls them palm branches, but their meaning was universal. Everybody understood what this practice was about. In fact, one historian in 1 Maccabees records one of the earliest records of palm branches being used to welcome back victorious military throngs of people coming back celebrating that they had been victorious over a number of different enemies. They're singing hymns, they're praising, they're waving palm branches. So there's military power. There's a victory in this imagery. This is what Jesus is seeing. See, essentially by waving these branches... And singing these songs, the people are saying, this Jesus is the long-awaited hope, the one who will eradicate the city of ungodly Gentiles. It was a military celebration. So why did Jesus come? To bring the kingdom. Do you see it? Jesus sees the city, he sees the branches, but he also hears people shouting. What are they saying? The crowd seems to erupt with every step of Jesus' cult as he comes deeper into the city. But it's not this sort of like nonsensical, like, groupy session, right? People aren't screaming like they're seeing their favorite celebrity. It's way more orchestrated than that. They're all on the same page. They're quoting Scripture. They're quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. It's a song of celebration. There's a repeated line in that psalm of the steadfast love endures forever. They knew exactly what they were singing. He's bringing salvation to Israel. See, on that day, the people of God in the city of Jerusalem were connecting an ancient promise from Psalm 118 to Jesus riding in on, the, on that colt in that city that day, that the coming kingdom, they said, of our father David. They knew what was going on. This is what they saw. This is what Jesus sees. The people saw Jesus, they saw a king, and they saw his kingdom. So why did Jesus come? To bring the kingdom. Do you see it? See, the place, the palms, and the people, all these details tell us that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. Yet, there is this one detail that frustrates all of it. There's one thing that seems off. All of it looks queued up, 
Like everything makes sense, right? All the people were lying in the streets. Jesus was coming in. He was Jewish. He knew about the promise. They all knew Zechariah. They knew Psalm 118. Everything was lining up. But he came on a donkey, and that was messing with people's expectations. That wasn't expected. You see, everything about this scene is telling us that the kingdom is here, that the king is here, that power is here, that redemption is here, that victory is here, celebration is here, except that donkey. Even today, a donkey doesn't go, yes, we're going to win. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. That donkey messes with people's vision if they're only seeing with their eyes. See, we need to look deeper with the heart, not just with the eyes, and so should we. Writing for Christianity Today this week, Esau Macaulay explains that all the Gospels are clear that Jesus chose a symbol, a way for his people to make sense of his kingship. But it was the young donkey. Jesus picked a symbol that emphasized humility and lowliness instead of military strength. See, while the city, the branches, and all of the shouting was telling us that the kingdom is here, the donkey was telling us what the kingdom is like. The donkey was saying something about the nature and the quality, the characteristic of the kingdom. See, people picked up palm branches. Jesus picked up, picked rather a donkey. People saw one kind of kingdom and Jesus saw another, but there's more here. See, Jesus doesn't just have a relational motivation and a kingdom motivation. He also has a redemptive motivation. And that donkey is the window into understanding the nature of of this redemptive arrival. That donkey is going to help us see with our hearts. Mark gives us another simple yet very odd little detail, perhaps the most odd detail in this entire story. He saves for last. See, if we don't see with our eyes, it'll just be left as meaningless. But when we look more closely, I think the Lord helps us to see beyond. Look at verse 11. This is so interesting. Mark 11, verse 11, it says, "'And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple.'" And when he had looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Doesn't that seem like so? <laughs> so essentially, after all of this pomp and circumstance, people are shouting, palm branches, people laying cloaks everywhere, Jesus divines a donkey out of nowhere, tells people the master needs it, all of these sorts of things. And all of this crescendos to the temple, Jesus looks around checks out his watch. He's like, I'm kind of tired. Let's go home. They leave the city, and that's it. That would, that's really odd. Can you imagine if you were there that day? And you're like, you prepared those palm branches. You were like, this is going to be amazing. I know I heard the donkey's almost here, right? We're following on GPS and here, and then it's just over. It's so anticlimactic if we're only seeing with our eyes. So let's go back to the donkey. People expected a different animal, Something more regal, more impressive, perhaps. Something they thought fit for a king, a war horse, perhaps. Something that would boast victory. Oh, but we see that the kingdom is not just about victory, it's about virtue. It's not just about victory, it's about virtue. See, in, in other words, Jesus did not simply come to establish his rule and reign. He came to transform people. He didn't just come to say the kingdom is here. He came to say what? Here's what the kingdom is like. This is why Jesus constantly was saying things like, the kingdom of God is like. It's like a man who buys a field. 
It's like a mustard seed, right? It's like for the children. He over and over again is trying to paint more of a picture of what the kingdom is like than to celebrate that the kingdom is here. That means how his kingdom has come is just as important that his kingdom has come. Are you with me? This is critical for us to understand. And I imagine this is why some people are really annoying about the kingdom and some of us are really annoyed about the way they talk about the kingdom. Because the longer we are with Jesus, the more we realize we aren't meant to celebrate his rule and reign without living the way that his kingdom is meant to manifest. They're supposed to come together. See, this runs contrary, in other words, to our way of power in society, our way of understanding power. See, power for many of us is a goal, it's not a way. Power is a position, power is a place, power is a particular role that we embrace. People want power, and we give much less consideration to how we establish that power or accomplish that power or even what to do when power is achieved. Here's how you know power is an idol for you. If you want power, but you have no idea what you want to do with it. You want to be in positions of authority, but you don't know or really desire or have a plan for what you do after you get in that position of power. This is ultimately who we are in America today. We love power, and we don't know what to do when we've got it. Regretfully, that kind of understanding of power has infiltrated the church, has infiltrated our own community, our own understanding of what it means to be in positions of authority. It's the way many of us even bear witness to the kingdom See, we want celebrities to profess our particular way of faith. We think that's when the kingdom will advance, if popular people talk about Jesus. We want politicians to legislate our precise brand of morality, because in that way the kingdom will advance. We want schools to be shaped by the values of our holy literature. That way, then, the kingdom will advance. Do you see, we have this earthly vision of of power in order to achieve kingdom victory. And church, that can't happen. The kingdom is meant to advance in kingdom ways, not in earthly ways. See, while there's a vital role for celebrity and politics and school education, all of these things, I'm not trying to like you know, I know you have like a perfect celebrity in mind who would really move and shake the Christian faith. I know, it's the perfect person. Or your particular politics, if this person, this week, if this mayor takes office, then Chicago will be much more like the kingdom of Jesus. I assure you, it will not if the church continues to behave the way that the church behaves. Inoculated with the same brand of power as everybody else. The same is true in my own heart. If I keep thinking that the kind of power that Jesus really wants us to wield is no different than the kind of power this earth has, then we're all missing it. In other words, while there is a vital role for all of these things, all these kingdom objectives, what is most clear is that we've lost our way as it relates to power. See, Macaulay uh, goes on in his article to say, to prove this point, he says, if we strive to establish God's rule through self-assertion, over neighborly care, pragmatism over principle, and malice over love, then whatever else we accomplish, we are no longer following the way of Jesus. See, the kingdom is about victory, but that victory is achieved and only completely achieved through the virtues of the kingdom. See, the way that we accomplish something, Jesus says, is just as important that you accomplish it. Jesus 
is about to establish his kingdom through his death. And this is what is so unexpected, beyond the donkey, but what the donkey points us to. He's about to accomplish his kingdom in a way that none of us could possibly conceive and none of us would have possibly recognized. That is by becoming a sacrifice. The king, in other words, is also the servant. See, before he entered the gates of Jerusalem on the donkey, Jesus corrected his disciples' own vision of kingdom power. This is leading to the gates. James and John, if you remember, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it exposes my own sin. James and John asked their mom, can you please go to Jesus and ask him for the most important seats in his kingdom, one at the left and one at the right? And then all of the other disciples get really upset. Why? Because they, that's wrong. Don't ask Jesus that. No, they're upset because they didn't think of it first. That they're like, oh, now they're going to get the best seats in the house, and we want that position, and we want that authority, and they all squabble with one another, right? Jesus corrects them by saying this. He says, the Gentiles lord it over them and use power in all kinds of different ways. He says, but it must not be so among you. In other words, you don't look at power that way. You don't wield power that way by lording over people. But whoever would be great, he says, among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How counterintuitive is this to our world? We, we don't believe that in the kingdom of God, we're not, we're not meant to believe that up and to the right gives us more power that the C-suite is the place where all the power is, that the elected politician, that the official, that whoever it is, is the person in promise. It's the person that is willing to die for the sake of others. That's where the power is. Can you even imagine if we voted like this, if we thought like this, if we inhabited school systems like this? I'll die first. I'll sacrifice first. I'll give up my rights first. I'll lay down my power first. Not yelling at a neighbor for not cutting their lawn, but going, yo, I know life is crazy right now. You want me to cut? By the way, a lawn is a thing in front of someone's house. It's, it's grass. I know some of us haven't seen it in the city, but it's just it's your own little property. It's the only pat- patch of, of paradise. But can you imagine instead of judging our neighbors, we actually help take care of them? Instead of creating space and making sure that we prove that we were right if we showed love, this is the kingdom of Jesus. And I think what we're inoculated with is that we think once we get in positions of power, then somehow we'll baptize that power and the kingdom of God will come. Jesus is like, it must not be so among you. That's not how I get things done. See, the kingdom is about victory, but it's also about virtue. This, the most vivid expression in Christ, most vividly expressed in his victory by serving, by dying, and ostensibly by losing. How many of Jesus' followers felt like they won the day he died. We have stories of people walking home, grieving, because everything they thought was true about Jesus came undone at the cross. In other words, they had the same view of power that we often do. Death is not the way to win. <laughs> this is what they all thought. It's like, that makes sense. So, so from the first moment of Jesus' death until now, we're still wrestling with the same thing. That we often think that power is about holding on to power, and Jesus is saying true power is about giving power away. It's not about laying hold of your life, it's about letting it go. See, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, the donkey gives us insight into the redemptive motivation for Jesus' coming. So why did he come? To redeem through his death. He came because he loved his Father, he came to bring the kingdom, and he came to redeem through death. Two scenes later, Jesus has a different posture. And at first blush, it seems like it undoes everything that 
now we have arrived to with this spiritual vision. It seems like it's counterintuitive. It feels different. It feels like it undermines the humility and sacrifice we've just discussed. But now it's Monday. It's the next day. Palm Sunday happens on a Sunday. And now it's Monday. He goes back to the city and he goes back to the temple, but this time he doesn't look around. He's already seen enough. He tosses a bunch of tables that have money and merchandise on them amongst this gaggle of animals. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 17. So if you're still in Mark 11, just move down a few verses. Mark 11, 17, it says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So this is a pretty famous scene. Maybe many of you, even if you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures, are familiar with Jesus tossing temple tables. And in fact, in many reenactments, it's this sort of rage moment where He's yelling and throwing stuff, even though when you read the Scriptures, we have a very different posture at play. But how do we square it? How do we square Palm Sunday with this Monday? How do we harmonize the donkey seemingly humbled with this now seemingly violent display of correction? Well, again, we need spiritual vision. See, Jesus is actually demonstrating the virtue of the kingdom here. You see, the first place you go when you entered into the temple in the first century was a place called the Court of the Gentiles. This was meant to be a place, unlike the rest of the temple, meant for everyone. Regardless of your faith, regardless of your ethnicity and your culture, everyone, anyone and everyone was welcome into the Court of the Gentiles. It was a place of hospitality. It was a place of welcome. It was a place of curiosity and of learning and of being exposed to the things of God without fully comprehending all of them. It was a place, in other words, for the nations. That's what Jesus says. This was meant to be a house of prayer for who? The nations, for everybody. But instead of curious, non-Jewish conversation, engaging in thoughtful conversations and receiving hospitality, Jesus finds a market of industry. Specifically, they were buying and selling animals for the sacrifices of Passover. One contemporary Jewish historian estimated that over 250,000 lambs were bought and sold in Jerusalem during Passover. So this is what Jesus is welcomed into. It's bloody, it's chaotic, it's exclusive. So in turning over tables that day, after this kingdom celebration, Jesus is teaching us a couple of things. And I love that in Mark's account, it says that he's teaching them. He's not judging them and yelling at them. That's a very different word than coming in and just yelling and screaming and throwing things over. He's teaching them something. He's teaching them at least two things. First, his kingdom is for everybody. His kingdom is for everybody. It's for all nations. It's for Jew and Gentile. Second is that his kingdom is about his death, not the death of all of these animals. It's established not through animal sacrifice, but through the sacrifice of his own body. In summary, Pastor Tim Keller explains that what absolutely shocked the Jewish leaders in that moment and in this scene is that Jesus was overturning the sacrificial system of the temple and opening the way into the presence of God for everyone. This is what shocked them. By the end of this scene, they couldn't put it all together. Each time, and this is what the Lord always does with us, right? We find this nice little tidy box that he fits in. All right, I got it. I got it. And he's like, and you're like, all right, all right, my bad. I got it now. This is what he's like. This is who he he loves. This is who he hates. This is what he says. This is what he does. He's like, and you get another one, right? I mean, this is, it's my life. I just keep thinking that I've got him. He's like, I'm going to bust open that box of expectation too. I'm even better than that. I'm bigger than that. I'm, I'm more holy than that. That's the victory of Jesus' kingdom. 
The victory of Jesus' kingdom is not that he conquers over and takes over the will of another, but that his virtues lay hold of a world and bring transformation in a way that none of us could have expected. That's Jesus' redemptive motivation. So why did he come? To redeem through death. I hope you can see it. See, Jesus' motivations are not meant to just be spectacles that we remember on on Palm Sunday, but they are actually meant to be inhabited by his people. These are virtues that he extends now to us. See, he came out of relationship, love for his Father. So the question for you and for me is, does the heavenly Father and a love for him, is that the thing that motivates you first, foremost, and most centrally? He came to bring the kingdom, and so is Jesus' kingdom central to your own longings for justice, for liberation, and for healing, for your work, and for your family? He came to redeem have you been redeemed? Have your eyes been opened to see this kingdom coming? Are you being renewed daily? And is that the desire, the thing that you desire for your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones, and the watching world around you? See, this is what we understand, I think, only through spiritual vision. Is that what you see? Not just a man coming into a city, but a Lord coming to say, everyone is welcome. Say, everyone is welcome through me. If that's not it, if that's not what you see, then behold the king today. Look at him. Reconsider him. Allow him to completely shatter your expectations in the boxes of your childhood or of your adulthood that you try to fit him into. Relook at the one who came into the city on a donkey as the long-awaited hope, the one who is coming to redeem everything, to bring his kingdom victory, but through his kingdom virtue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do uh, need your help to rethink, to relearn, to re-welcome in a way the truth of who you are, of who your Son is and what you have accomplished through Him. And so as we prepare for this week of Easter, this week of the passion of our Lord, would you help us to not just see with our eyes and hear with our ears, but to perceive with our hearts. that we would see rightly, that we'd see completely, that we would see with hope. Because among so many other things, we need a complete reorientation about what power looks like in this world. We need complete transformation of what wisdom and truth and love and grace look like in this world. So would you empower us to do that by looking at this, your son coming into the city on a donkey tossing temple tables to teach that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you teach us that? Would you help us to see that so that others might see and savor the goodness, the mercy, the love, and the grace of our Lord Jesus, the King who brings a kingdom out of love for His Father. In Jesus' name, amen.